Okay, good evening, everyone. I'm Miriam Zaidi, and welcome to your active hybrid conference supported by Microsoft. Now, today is the closing for a series that has been exploring where European democracy is at and where it needs to be. The theme for our discussion today is democratic values in the digital age. How can tech companies reinforce and strengthen European democracy? A big welcome to our in-person audience and to everyone who is joining us online. Now, today is a little bit different to our usual blueprint. Um, after some opening remarks, we're actually going to have three panel discussions across the three themes of EDAP, the European Democracy Action Plan. So strengthening media freedom, promoting free and fair elections, and countering disinformation. Now, each panel is going to be 20 minutes long, and we will also be taking your questions. So there's a lot of content to get through. So, But also, we obviously want everyone to, as always, get involved. So send in your questions or your comments into Slido, um, the app, and we'll be picking those out for later on in the program and during every um, panel discussion, time permitting. And talking of time, what a timely debate we're having today. European democracy is under attack. These aren't my words. These are the words of the European Parliament President, Roberta Metzola. As Qatargate, the bribe scandal consuming the European Parliament, heats up, it's just another reminder that power and influence cannot be unbridled. It needs to be checked. It needs to be held up to account. Europe has many tools in which to fight it, to fight the injustice, but can it clean house? All puns intended, but obviously disclaimer, innocent until proven guilty. Now, over the last few months, Microsoft has led a series of discussions on democratic values in the digital age, which brought together civil society, academia, legislative and tech to reflect on the direction of European democracy and the role that tech can play in advancing democratic norms using the EDAP as a guide for all conversation. And a partner from each of these discussions is going to actually join our panellists, albeit virtually, um, to discuss the given topic or theme. Well, to learn more, without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Nana Louise Lind, the Vice President of European Government Affairs at Microsoft. Thank you so much and welcome everyone. Welcome to our panelists and the audience here and the audience online. Uh, very happy to host you here at Microsoft. Um, as we heard already from our dear um, moderator, democracies are uh, under pressure and de democratic values are under pressure. Democracies in the world are declining the amount is declining um, where they should be rising. Um, democratic values are under pressure. I think the war in Ukraine is one symbol of this. Uh, disinformation, as you mentioned, is on the rise. Um, journalists are threatened more than ever, um, being surveyed, investigated by their own governments. Um, as we, and as we have seen from the series here, and also what we found in our report on uh, what we learned uh, from the Ukraine war so far, um, these bad actors undermine uh, entire democratic processes. And digital technology does play a role as a weapon. Um, 
On the other hand, it can also serve as a tool to protect democratic values. So that place, uh, that, that puts technology companies in a very important role and with a very important uh, responsibility. And uh, we can help in different ways, help combat misinformation. We can build tools to protect um, democratic values and processes, elections. Um, and we've done a lot already uh, at Microsoft. Uh, we've done a lot of work in, in Ukraine. Um, we have uh, built tools and uh, <clears throat> services that help governments protect their elections. Uh, we are training journalists and governments in these, these tools and process and, and services. Uh, but it's, and we're also an active supporter of some of the initiatives from, from the Commission, uh, European Democratic Action Plan. But there's probably more that we can do and uh, more that we should learn uh, to understand our responsibility. And uh, I think that's why, you know, this series has been really helpful also to, to, for us to understand better and hear other voices than our own. Um, so we're really a proud supporter of this initiative and uh, I want to take the opportunity to uh, thank Euractiv for organizing this event and kick off these uh, series. Uh, our partners, uh, University College Dublin, Globsec in Bratislava, uh, Central European Digital Media Observatory in Prague, uh, for organizing these workshops and looking very much forward to their findings, the outcomes of those workshops. Hope we can learn from them. My final thanks go to you as the moderator and the panelists, and um, I'm going to hand the mic back to you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you for those comments. Thank you so much. Okay, well, with that, uh, Mr. Wojciech-Talko, please do take the floor. He is, of course, a member of the Cabinet of EU Commissioner for Values and Transparency, Vera Jourova. Please give us your opening thoughts and keynote speech. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Good evening, uh, everyone. I appreciate that you decided to spend a Wednesday evening uh, here with us in the room and also um, online. I mean, I have roughly 10 minutes, right? Um, so I will uh, try to essentially, I have one goal. I want to ask you for help. Um, because we talk about democracy and I cannot uh, disagree with anything that was already said before, um, but there's no one institution, one company, uh, one person that will defend it. Democracy is us, our institutions, our votes, our civil society activism, uh, and we all have to play our role in this if we want to upheld it and protect it. There's no doubt democracy is under threat. No doubt. We see it in the US, which is, you know, apparently has the, the best checks and balances. We see it in Europe. Um, and I have a feeling that at least in Europe, for, for a long period of time, democracy was seen as perpetuum mobile. I'm from Poland. Our democracy uh, is from 89, so relatively young. But, but even then, the 90s, the early 2000s, it was like everything will take care of itself. I think it's clear the answer to this is no, it won't. Either we fight for it or it will be uh, lost. 
Um, and you know, I work for Vice President Vera Jovrova, who is Czech, so I wouldn't be allowed to leave that room without quoting Václav Havel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me just very briefly read his quote, because I, I mean, it's 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 bad. He's very eloquent. Me, not so much. So, so I better read it because. Um, to, to give uh, the true meaning to what he wanted to say. And he, he wrote, the natural disadvantage of democracy is that it's extremely tiring to those who mean it honestly, while, while it allows almost everything to those who do not take it seriously. I mean, my interpretation of this, that democracy is messy, it's complicated, uh, and it's not that easy even for the people to, to fully embrace it and defend it, because I think that's the question if we say, we want to defend democracy. What, what is it that we actually want to defend? And there are many elements. I won't dwell into that too much. But I think, first of all, it's the voters, right? It's the, in democracy, it's the voters that have their ultimate arbiters of which political party, which leaders are supposed to govern, what values they're supposed to represent. And it's our job, I think, as the European institution, as the European Commission, to make sure that there is this level playing field, that the voters can take their decisions um, in the best possible information environment, having, having the best information available, trustworthy information, and can take free decision or as free as they can possibly be. And for that to happen, the system of checks and balances have to work. And I mean, you, I'm sure you know what I mean. It's the free media, independent media, pluralistic media, uh, independent courts, uh, it's peaceful transition of power, free and fair elections, among many other things. And I want to be clear about it because our actions, that I will say briefly a few words in a second, is not about ideology. It's not about being left-wing or, or right-wing. It's about for the left-wing or right-wing people competing fairly on the democratic scene. Um, and, you know, I really want to thank you for, for to Euroactive, to Microsoft, to all other partners who are organizing this event and these panels, because when I look at the three titles of the panels, it's essentially the pillars also of the European Democracy Action Plan. Uh, so I take it that we also did something right, uh, at least with, with this plan. Um, and, and I trust the panels will go into details, but so, so let me stress... Uh, let me start by stressing the media, because this was something that I think this commission uh, has really taken seriously. Before, the approach to media was, ooh, you know, it's an economic sector. Yes, it is. There's a lot of private sector, a lot of money involved. Let's not touch it. You know, it's a sector as many others. So competition rules apply, uh, but no special treatment. We have departed from that. Uh, uh, why? Because media is not economic sector as any other. They're essential pillar of democracy. They're the fourth state. And without pluralistic, trustworthy media, we simply, as voters, have a hard time getting right information. Uh, and again, it's not about saying which information is right or wrong. It's about creating the conditions where the media and journalists can do their job. Uh, so we have done, I think, we have advanced this agenda and we are building the European layer of, of um, supporting media freedom and pluralism. Uh, let me just mention from the end, from recently, we have adopted in September, we have proposed the European Media Freedom Act. Uh, this is already 
controversial proposal, let me put it this way. Um, we try to, what we try to do there, we really try to address the problems that we see. So from our perspective, it's extremely practical. And it's a very common sense approach. We don't dictate how member states should design their media, media systems. We say maybe no party friends should be the bosses of public TV stations. No. Uh, we say there should be... Um, we say also we're talking about tech, so let's say that we should also the platforms, the social media platforms should pay more attention to the content, editorial content provided by the media. Uh, because this is, you know, this is this freedom of speech debate. Like, do the platforms, should the platforms have the right to assess the contents of the media, which, you know, on the one hand, DSA tells them to do so, but on the other hand, we have to be very clear that this content should be treated differently, right? So uh, we also want to make sure that when there are media, uh, there are mergers and acquisitions of media companies, that it's not only a business transaction from the view of the regulator when they assess it, but it's also a pluralism test. Because it's not good if majority of the media are owned by the same person or by the same organization, whether it's private or public. Um, so, you know, even though it's common sense, some countries, some stakeholders have a problem with it. Of course, this is, you know, our opening gambit and we are, will be working with the council and the parliament and with stakeholders to get it right. But I think, you know, the, the, the one thing I want to say is it's really needed. It's really needed and the answer, oh, you know, because we've never done it and we shouldn't touch it, is just not good enough and not ambitious enough for the, for the times we live in, you know. Um, the second pillar of the European Democracy Action Plan, which is really, I think, you know, the first uh, time the Commission tried to put comprehensive response and show that we have to work on many, or we have to play on many instruments at the same time if we want to strengthen the resilience of democracy, uh, is disinformation. I mean, now, of course, the, the Russian war in Ukraine have accelerated everything. Everything comes to the light, and, and we can see very clearly, I think, you know, what especially many countries in Central and Eastern Europe were saying for a long time, Russia is weaponizing information. What they're doing they don't only fight with bombs and rockets, they also fight with words. They've always done so, but they've gained new tools, digital tools. I'm not saying that this is intended, of course, by the social media companies, uh, because that's not the point. They did it in the, where they tried to use traditional media before, but they have gained vast array of new powerful tools because younger generations are more and more sourcing the information about the world they see from, from online media. And we can see it on the example of Russia, but it's not only Russia, of course, that they intentionally manipulate information space and platform features to undermine free speech. Uh, the challenge to this is how to find a democratic response to authoritarian weapons. And uh, I think, you know, you, you saw our response, you know our response is European Democracy Action Plan, it's the legislation like the Digital Services Act, it's the legislation like political ads uh, regulation, but it's also non-legislative uh, actions like code of practice on disinformation. 
And uh, so, so that's why we have to really take it seriously. The, the codes, you know, it's I think by the 16th, the, the, the signatories, including Microsoft, thank you very much for signing up. Um, they have time till the 16th to implement it, and January will be really a test case because this will become uh, public, and we can discuss in details what that means. Uh, let me just, the final words, because this is also not only what we have done, uh, but also what we will do. Uh, so we've started work on defense of democracy package, which also uh, um, is supposed to be a legislation on transparency of on foreign funding. You know, maybe some relevance also to to what what you talked about in the context of the of the Qatar gates uh, that we're seeing. Of course, it's not going to solve all the, all the problems, but I think it gains new relevance in that light. Um, so, so this is we are because this is also important for us that events like this and everything that happens in the weeks and months to come, we are filling this defense of democracy package with substance. So we need ideas, we need creative ideas. This will be also revision of the European Democracy Action Plan. So we we haven't done something or we've done something not good enough. This is the time to tell us we have few months together to put together a substantial package, legislative and non-legislative because, you know, just in the timing of the political life we live in, in Brussels, this is probably the last push of this commission, substantial push, especially when it comes to legislation, because then, of course, we need time for the parliament and the council uh, to agree. So the plan is the second quarter, around May probably, you know, but I haven't touched upon many other things, cybersecurity, resilience, and others, uh, other things, but we can explore these things together with, with colleagues in the panel. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for having me. Thank you very much for organizing this, and I'm looking forward to the, to the debate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please do join us back. Um, okay, well, you heard from Mr. Wojciech uh, Talko there. He was talking um, about how we all need to fight for democracy, and indeed we do. Um, but who is also fighting? to influence all of us, the voter. Now, the online world, of course, influences so much of what we do, whether it's socially, democratically, and politically. Human behavior can be easily manipulated by online content, um, carefully curated algorithms, of course, based on what we seem to like, maximize our engagement and help form our ideas, our opinions. Um, now, social media is, of course, fodder also for misinformation. Mr. Wojciech was also leading to um, Russia's manipulation war um, in its war in Ukraine. Um, many platforms, of course, have been accused of um, using misinformation um, and lots of allegations against them for the harm that that misinformation, of course, causes and the lies that it then allows um, to spread. Now, the biggest impact is perhaps the influence that social media platforms have on forming our politics and who we decide to vote for or the causes that we then um, believe in or take up. Now, just now, over in the US, bipartisan legislation could outright ban one of the biggest um, apps right now, TikTok, um, it would ban it outright in the US. They say it's a threat to national security 
Is that approach right? Well, the EU is always um, armed with tools to help regulate and navigate the internet, along with things like EDAP. Um, we have the Digital Services Act. Um, now, the EU Commission, as Mr. Talca mentioned, is also trying to help along democracy with things like the Defence of Democracy package. We saw Ursula von der Leyen, of course, unveil it, um, you know, draped in the Ukrainian flag. But is the gap between rhetoric and reality painfully obvious today, or are we actually closing that gap? Well, without further ado, you've already heard from Mr. Talco. Let's introduce our other panelists. We have Louise Grabo, who's the president of the Observatory of the Digital Transition and the Single Market at the European Social and Economic Committee. Welcome. We also have Fernanda Hotel Foronda, who's a digital policy officer at the European Partnership for Democracy. Um, and as I mentioned, a online panelist will be joining us per panel debate, so do watch out for them as well. And to all the um, everyone in the audience here and online, do put your questions into Slido. Okay, with that, let me now go over to Louise for your opening comments. Thank you so much, uh, and thank you, Euractive and Microsoft, for having me here. Um, as you mentioned, I am, yeah, I'm the chair or the president for the Digital and Single Market Observatory in uh, the European Economic and Social Committee. And what we are doing are that we are looking more into new technologies and how that affects um, the EU, but also the civil society and the society as a whole. So we do a lot of discussions and panels and information about AI, blockchain, big data, cloud, and all these things. So that is where I come from, and I'm from Sweden, and there I also work with the fintech, so I'm also into this tech world. Uh, so there are my perspectives from today. And when speaking about new technologies, uh, a new technology could never be bad or good. A new technology is always neutral, and the ones behind it that can be a threat or harm anyone. But I would never say that a new technology in itself could be bad or good. And I think it's the same with social media and the tech companies. Um, social media uh, could be very powerful. Uh, we've seen CEOs from different social medias that are maybe having more powers than uh, any politician in the EU or any member state. Um, and we should be aware of this, of course. Uh, but at the same time, there's not a, an option for the EU to try to create their own super app or super social media. This should be up to the market because the new innovations come from the market and we will always see new social media and always new tech companies coming up. Um, but what are the values that we want to see online? I think this is what we should focus on. And of course we want to see free speech, we want to see safe platforms where young people, where kids actually are at, so there should be some kind of a safe space. And uh, we should, of course, promote competition on the market so we see new companies coming up. Um, and this is some of the yeah, first words in this panel that I will say now, and I hopefully come back to some of them and uh, get to say something more uh, later on. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much. I think safety and competition are two important themes that we will discuss later. Um, please, over to you for next. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, having me here. Thank you very much to Microsoft and to Euractive. Uh, I would suggest that companies, including big tech, do actually play a very limited, proactive role in the EDAP. Other than, of course, the EDAP, the measures there and the measures that the EDAP really implies or that underpin EDAP, which are the European Media Freedom Act and the DSA, of course, create obligations for uh, online platforms and others. But uh, just to try to enrich the discussion coming afterwards, I would suggest that there are a couple areas that are not exactly the core of the EDAP, but that are around the EDAP, where actually uh, tech companies can play a role to reinforce and strengthen uh, democracy in the EU. The first one was something that it's very interesting, and here I must disagree on the idea that it's exclusively the market that creates social media. The market creates them, regulations shape them, and that's the self-government principle. The, a democratic society is entitled to uh, define how services are provided in that society. And something that the European Union has certainly done is to impose upon very large online platforms the obligation to uh, assess risks, not only to fundamental rights, but also to civic discourse and to electoral processes, uh, stemming from uh, very large online platforms, most notably social media. And there, there are provisions on involving civil society and researchers in identifying these risks and identifying the uh, mitigation actions that need to be taken. But this is not very clear to many exactly how this will be taken into account, how public the process is, which structure does this have. And here I do think that uh, big tech has a possibility to act in good faith and take in the expertise, the evidence and the suggestions that civil society brings in. So that's the first point. Second, also staying in uh, the DSA, uh, access to data. So something that has been mandated in the DSA in Article 40, uh, vetted researchers must, be, uh, must have access and be able to scrutinize uh, data by very large online platforms. Uh, many uh, researchers have been slapped in the past when trying to access data. They have ended up having to give up uh, their research projects. Their universities have... Uh, the funding by big tech to some of their universities has been withheld. We have experienced all of this in the past. Something to hope for is that uh, access to data and scrutiny of data happens indeed in a smooth manner, as mandated in the DSA. Third, in the DSA we really have a lot on recommender systems, and I must thank the Commission very much for the proposal that was put forward which I think was strengthened through the legislative process, but essentially there we have the proposal by the Commission. And we have a large degree of transparency and a certain degree of informed choice by the user on the recommender systems. But here I think there is room for more. And often the debate, we have already seen it here, often the debate on the responsibility on uh, platforms gravitates around content moderation, so direct actions on specific items of content. But we have a much more structural key factor for democracies that it's content curation. So I wouldn't care so much that a specific news article is taken down of Facebook, but whether Facebook algorithms makes that news articles 
have less visibility in general because they are less engaging and then people will stay less time on the platform using it. This, I think, is a greater threat to democracy because this results in people being less informed and then having less informed choices. So I think there is a lot of room in the area of how content is curated in general and how relevant information it's demoted or not. Uh, one issue, Wojtek was mentioning the initiative on political ads. Uh, we know uh, that some platforms are very bad at identifying when an ad is political or not. And in this digitalization that we're experiencing, ads used to be political ads, political campaigns happened on the radio, TV, newspapers, billboards. And there, whoever, whichever company had a billboard and an ad would go there, they would have to check whether it was political or not and comply with electoral law. This doesn't seem to be that very much this case. We have the research by the New York University uh, Center for Cyber and researchers at uh, the Catholic University of Leuven showing that Facebook identifies three false negatives as political ads for each political ad that it actually gets right. But we also have the information that across the world this ratio is very different. So it shows that when big tech puts resources to correctly identify political ads, Voila, they happen to be correctly identified. So this is somewhere where big tech really has room for improvement, dedicating resources to ensure that ads that happen to be political are correctly identified, and indeed obligations that will come from the political ads regulation will then uh, kick in. One last point where we see action taken uh, recently as per an interview given by Commissioner Reinders to Euroactive last week. Uh, there will be apparently some work in relation to dark patterns and cookie banners. Uh, we understand that privacy, understanding privacy as each individual's ability to just disclose information about themselves under their own control, it's a precondition of democracy. Because in a country where citizens' lives are not private, democracy is essentially not possible. And there is probably room to rely on genuine consent. We have recent decisions taken by the ADPB in relation to conditions under which personal data can be processed. Looking at legislative action likely coming up, uh, public consultation open already on uh, online fairness, digital fairness initiative, if I recall correctly, we have room for improvement in how to genuinely and validly uh, gather consent from data subjects before and while processing their personal data. Okay, thank you so much, Fernando. Um, okay, well, let's kick off the first discussion then, um, and we are talking about media freedom and pluralism. Um, I invite Eugenia Siapera, who's the Professor of Information and Communication Studies at the University College Dublin, to our conversation. She, of course, joins remotely, you can see on her screens. Please start us off um, with your key recommendations. One minute, please, maximum. Thank you, go ahead. Thank you. Um, contemporary news media um, are locked in a symbiotic, albeit uh, unequal and occasionally antagonistic relationship with the state and digital platforms. Media freedom and pluralism requires that states clarify and sharpen the, me the meaning of pluralism, demarcating its contours and offering protections from state overage. Platforms, on the other hand, should support news media and journalism's important social and political functions, even if on occasion this may interfere with the business models and bottom lines. 
Also, I would like to add that certain forms of journalism that are necessary for democracy, for example, investigative journalism, should be systematically supported, even if they are uh, not commercially profitable. Attention should be paid to the working conditions of journalists, especially on precarity, potentially dangerous assignments and long shifts, as all of these may compromise um, journalism. Okay, thank you so much. Very snappy. Um, okay, Wojciech, your reaction then to what Eugenia said, and also perhaps comments by Louise and Fernando as well. Yes, thank you, Eugenia, uh, for that. I mean, it's very difficult to disagree with this. I know disagreements <laughs> would be much more uh, interesting. Um, but uh, I, I can only say that, uh, indeed, we agree on that. Uh, I mean, the pluralism... Yes, it's super difficult to, I think, define uh, legally, but especially on the EU level. But but I think you know the the, the idea or the, the the direction of travel is is super simple. There, first of all, has to be transparency, and this is what we try to mandate on the EU level. Who owns what? Because it's not very clear in some member states who is particular owner of that newspaper or that TV. Uh, and and with this, of course, uh, if you don't know who owns what, it's also very difficult to to fully understand uh, what uh, but, are the interests. But sometimes there. it isn't just who no. owns what; it's it's who's on the board of directors of these companies and who's interfering that way. No, I mean, but that's you know we have to start uh, this transparency from somewhere, and this is one of the elements of the Media Freedom Act. So let's see where we. Uh, where we end there. I mean, full support to, to investigative journalism, local journalism, another form of this not maybe automatically profitable journalism here. The Commission is trying to provide some funds. I think we also work with, for instance, with, with Euroactive, and, but not only. And, and we, we want to have it more. We really want to have more money um, for cross-border, of course, cross-border projects, but uh, investigative journalism and things like that. On working conditions, I mean, this is, I remember, visiting with Vice President Yorova, meeting journalist associations. Indeed, this is every association in many countries we were in, mentions that. Um, and this is something that uh, I have to say, I don't know what can be done uh, on the EU level with the working conditions of journalism. That's why we have focused on something also very important on the safety because of journalism when they are doing their work. Because we also see, even statistically, that the, the, the risks for journalism when they cover protests, demonstrations, somewhere where the police and big crowds are involved. And it's really uh, getting worse. Migration. I mean, if, if, exactly, yeah. that's my point. It's getting worse. If you look worse, at what reports you know? about borders are saying about 2022, also because of the Ukraine war, yeah. um, you know, those who are detained, it's gone up 13.8%, um, 57 killed this year. I mean, obviously, as I said, the war in Ukraine um, has had an impact in all of this. But does that point to media freedom in the EU being at an all-time low? I mean, how do you measure that? I think where we are worried about is the trend, that it indeed is getting worse rather than it's getting uh, better. Uh, and that's why we, we have to work on this. But it's, it's the member states, and this is uh, Eugenia pointed to this, it's really the member states that have to pick up the, um, the button on this and, and do, do more. And this is what we, we try to encourage them with uh, the recommendation on safety, which is like 
you know, we also work with the media sector on this, um, what should happen to, for this to work. Uh, but I wouldn't say, you know, it's all-time low, it's very dramatic. I think we still have good media in Europe. Uh, we have a, a lot, great tradition of the public service media in Europe. No, we have uh, good media, though. So, you know. I think the bigger issue is what is being done to them and the journalists who are feeling more scared about the kind of work that they're trying to do these days. In fact. Exactly, and we, we want, the EU wants to be on their side, and I hope that we can find a solution to be on their side. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Eugenia, l let me just come to you quickly. Um, the Media Freedom Act, you've heard a little bit about it. Do you think it's a farce or a game changer? Um, I would say it's a, a good start. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, a lot of the provisions uh, are very necessary. It's a long time coming, uh, especially in terms of protection from slabs uh, and the safety of journalists, uh, transparency of ownership, all these are measures that had to be taken to protect journalism. I think where um, the, the act is perhaps um, less developed is in terms of supporting professional journalism. I think one of the biggest threats to media freedom comes because the business model of journalism has been eroded by platforms. Uh, this is the problem here uh, and this is where i would uh, how i would respond to your previous question um that we see a paradox here that more people than ever have access to publishing uh, but at the same time professional journalism uh, has been compromised because it's it's basic business model uh, has has imploded basically so because of this serious journalism can no longer function the same way that it was able to uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And the Media Freedom Act cannot do anything about this because ultimately, again, like journalism and media organizations are uh, regulated by the market. Is there anything we can do to support them or to place them outside the market through perhaps a subsidy system I don't know, but perhaps this is some a question that we also, or an issue that we also should be um, should we put should be put on the table. I mean, it was mentioned that new, the news industry is not like any other industry, so therefore, on this basis, maybe we can think about developing ways of subsidising um, journalism because its function, social political function, is crucial for Europe. It's crucial for our countries. Louise, you're taking what um, Eugenia just said. And is there also a role then? I mean, she was saying that they that that that, that tech has essentially um, eroded um, the rights of journalists, I believe. So is there a role that tech can play in all of this to help journalists or media organizations? Yeah, definitely. And I, I first of all, I would like to say it's hard to say if media freedom is at the lowest point, but I would say like in modern time we've seen yeah, it's, it's really bad. And even though when I'm speaking like from a Swedish and Nordic perspective, we see that they are in like the top position in this press freedom index that the Reporters Without Borders are uh, publishing every year. But even though we see new kind of threats that we're talking about, for example, um, the biggest newspapers in Sweden are talking about, uh, yeah, hate speech against journalists and that the police are not taking it serious enough. So the, the newspapers have to pay for, for security by themselves. And that's, that's a big threat that even though like the best countries in the world, there's still a problem. Uh, let's just think about how it is in the worst countries in the world and how, how the problem is over there. 
Um, and regarding like the what the big techs and uh, yeah social media companies can do about it, um, it's it's all about design. Right now, maybe Twitter isn't our best friend anymore. Uh, Are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure about that. Uh, but uh, social media such as Reddit is actually pretty good for journalists to use. So it's all about how these social medias are designed and how they could be used. But talking about Twitter then, um, the infamous um, Twitter right now as it is um, and the blue tick saga and everything that's been going on... Um, you can't just, I mean, using Twitter as an example, you can't just, we've seen in the past, they've tried to ban certain personalities or former presidents. Um, but banning people, banning content, I mean, that isn't a solution in itself, at least not long term. So what can come, what else could come in its place? Because you can't just keep saying to people, okay, um, this is harmful content, or these people are bad, um, you know, they're inciting something, or, or, or they're being harmful to journalists. So what's the solution then? I mean, how can you help the media talk to, you know, everyday people um, online in a forum that is constructive for both sides as well? Yeah, that, that's a really hard question to answer, but... Um, I think transparency in any any way possible. For example, now Twitter is taking away this verification symbol, and I think that you now will need to pay for that instead of yeah, you're ver I'm verified that I am Luis Grabo and I'm this person, and the same with uh, Elon Musk, he's that person. Uh, so, so that just makes everything harder. And the same for newspapers, for example, and for journalists. Um, so that is not a good example. Mm -hmm. uh, so more transparency and more information so we know who is who um, and so we can have more of the free speech, I would say. And then what about um, your ideas on um, the US sort of looking at or musing over this idea of an outright ban on, on TikTok? I mean, it seems like a... It seems bizarre that they're doing it basing on national security, but perhaps we know why. Is China such a big threat? Oh, I'm not like a security expert, <laughs> so I can't really answer that. But I'm. I'm but banning things like TikTok, yeah, you think that's yeah, the yeah. way that, that, that we should be going or not? No, I don't think so. I'm self-using using TikTok a lot, and I think it's a great channel to um, get to meet new people. Um, and getting out of your little bubble, so to say. And the algorithm of TikTok is very different from the other social medias. Now, of course, Instagram are trying to follow. So I think that is not the right way to go. And there, we should rather have uh, regulations. Of course, it's hard to regulate when it's a Chinese company, but I think we should look at other ways to do it. And Fernando, then, what, what, I mean, you've, you've spoken a bit about the Digital Services Act, putting obligations, I think you said, on, on big platforms and search engines. Just talk us through a little bit about that, then. Uh, the obligations placed on them that are considered relevant mm. for media or for democracy? Um, well, on, on platforms and search engines. Yes, sure. Uh, what I, uh, first of all, back to the point on banning accounts and banning someone, mm. uh, like... I try to stay away as much as possible from U.S. politics just to preserve the little sanity I have left. <laughs> but uh, I recommend that strongly to everyone uh -huh. else. You can feel an improvement after a couple of weeks. Uh, but uh, essentially, 
something that I think that's pretty good in DSA is uh, terms and uh, reference of uh, platforms must be fundamental rights aligned. So until now we have had we have had essentially an understanding that terms and references, uh, terms and conditions as well as the implementation of them were up to the platform itself to, to decide. Something that I think is particularly interesting is this. Does this mean that we need to go for some form of freedom of speech absolutism where people cannot be banned? Not at all. Uh, I think we understand in Europe that freedom of expression can be restricted in very specific circumstances, including protecting the rights of, of others. If you are using a platform like social media to incite violence and coordinate an assault on democracy, probably you should not be allowed to use social media. Of course, these circumstances must be the strongest possible safeguards must be provided to ensure that any type of action is proportionate to the need to protect the rights of others. But the protection of rights of, of others needs to be there. What I would like to do is to go back to the point raised by Eugenia, because I think it's, it's at the core, and it's very little discussed despite of being at the core, which is how we ensure sustainability. Let, let me ask a slightly malicious question. Why regulate media that might not be sustainable in 10 years? But without sustainability, we don't have anything to regulate at all. And the, we are asking about subsidies, but subsidies reproduce the system we have currently of donations. The problem we have had over the last 20 years when the revenue of newspapers has gone from uh, selling print editions and having ads on, printed on them for which they would get most of the revenue to having very little subscriptions online and getting a very small amount of, their, uh, of the ad revenue is that, of course, they are not sustainable anymore and then we don't have media pluralism because we have less and less media, and we have less quality media because newsrooms have less resources. So is the solution to these subsidies? No, the solution to this is addressing an obvious market failure. That is that we have a lot of media, but we have a very few key monopolistic players that happen to be big tech platforms that uh, keep most of the revenue that goes to newspapers. If Google is getting 90% of the money for an ad that appears in Le Monde, probably Le Monde will not be sustainable in 10 years. Google will certainly be. Uh, we have action in Australia that we are not particularly fans of. There is more promising action in Canada, but fairness in the allocation of revenue from ads is absolutely essential. And it, everyone is talking about the big brother, which is the European Media Freedom Act as such, but the European Media Freedom Act comes with a small sibling, which is a recommendation by the Commission too. And in this recommendation, there are four points asking uh, news media companies to become more sustainable through various actions. But probably the key to the sustainability is not within themselves, it's in the relations with, uh, with the online platforms that keep most of the revenue. But in which ways are they being sustainable or being asked to be sustainable? Uh, if someone has access to it, but they ask to explore new revenue uh, models based on micro donations, they are asked to uh, explore new forms of shared uh, subscriptions. They are asked to explore uh, economies of scales through cross-border managerial initiatives, etc., etc. But what I point out exactly is that beyond these recommendations addressed at the news media companies themselves, we should be issuing recommendations, if not hard law, at big tech to make sure, like, just like with, it will happen in Canada. Canada will establish that uh, media, news media must receive a minimum percentage of, based on negotiation between the news media and the online platform of uh, 
the ad revenue. So if someone is buying an ad to appear on the website of a newspaper, a minimum percentage, let's say 40, 50, whatever, will go to the newspaper. The current model we have in Europe is that a newspaper might get 5, 10, 20%. Particularly big ones, big media companies get more. Smaller newspapers get even less. How can we have media pluralism under these market conditions? We need to address the market failure at where it is which is a competitive market on the side of news media, but a monopolistic market on the side of big tech. So we need to rebalance power in that market to protect democracy, of course. Okay, well, there's also a question for you from Gwenell. She says, regarding the political ads proposal, you said that it should be up to big tech to correctly identify political ads, but what about putting the responsibility on the sponsors of such ads to declare their political nature instead? They are the ones with the most information in this case. What do you make of that? That was for you. Ah. Yeah. Uh, Political ads. Notwithstanding the obligations on the sponsors, uh, the sponsors have a primary obligation, and that's the way it's written in Article 5 of the proposal by the Commission. So everyone who's buying an ad should declare it, and happens to be political, should declare it as such. But that's the model we have offline. When a political party, on someone running a political ad on a TV, went to the TV station and said, hey, I want to run this ad, it happens to be political. Here's my disclosure, of course. But this is notwithstanding the TV station in that case to check the ad before running it and saying to this actor, okay, you're trying to run a political ad over my TV station, but you haven't declared it. So please, do this, otherwise I'm not running it. This is exactly what we need online too. Of course, the primary responsibility stays, remains uh, on the sponsor. But there is a subsidiary responsibility on service providers if they happen to care about, about free and fair elections at all, of course. Indeed. Okay, well, I think we only have a few minutes left, so let me go around the panel now and ask you for your sort of key takeaways. Um, I'll start with you, Mr. Wojciech. Key takeaways? Key takeaways from the discussion of the first panel we've had so far. All right. Your immediate thoughts. Uh, <laughs> um, You've got quite a few. I can see you scribbled a lot. Yeah, I scribbled <laughs> a lot, yes, and, and surprisingly even on the topic of this discussion. Um, so um, I think, you know, I think the first takeaway, I mean, let's start from the, from the end. So what, what should be the obligations of uh, online uh, platforms? So, so I think, you know, I, I take from this that, A, they have to respect the law, mm -hmm. whichever the law is and ideally not only in the letter, but also in spirit, because quite frankly, a lot of things that came after GDPR came from the fact that, yes, they implemented GDPR, but... How do they do it? But with mm. the kind of, to minimize the risk of going to court, but not fully embracing what is that supposed to be? And that's the second thing that they're supposed to do, understand and accept their own responsibility and their own powers. And three, translate this into their own policies. And this is the question of banning or not banning. I mean, that's the point. There shouldn't be that debate. You know, if you meet, uh, there should be conditions when person or account should be banned. If these conditions are met, the account should be banned. It shouldn't be case-by-case -case scenario, regardless whether you're a president or whatever, you official or just just a user uh, of Twitter or whatever, not Twitter, but I mean, okay, Trump was banned on Twitter. That's why I thought uh, of Twitter. I fully agree yeah. that uh, the market is, is uh, not fair when it, I mean, not fair, it's biased or, or tilted towards the big tech. They don't, they themselves say they don't produce the content and yet they seem to get the most revenue from this content. Part of the solution was supposed to be copyright uh, law that uh, 
is operational. I mean, I think it's the jury is still out there, but it's clear that it hasn't remedied the situation to the extent uh, that nothing else should be done, or at least not um, not yet. And and sometimes even you know Google, for instance, uh, as a result says, okay, so we're not going to show advertising from. Uh, some newspapers in some countries, and uh, so then there is even less actually revenue for the for the media. So that's definitely not. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a really important point that was made because no. if um, the organisations, the media organisations, don't have the ads, essentially they have to fold. Essentially, that's what happens then. I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm a civil servant, not not a CEO of of a media company, so I really would feel not qualified to tell media business how to run their business, whether it's subscription, whether it's ad, or whether it's something in the future. I think it's it's clear that digital reality is is here, and the media, the traditional media, will also have to, I mean, will have to have to must today adapt to this new reality. Um, but I think indeed we want to help. I have doubts whether subsidizing is the way to go as a sustainable solution, as Fernando would put it. Um, but we have to look at this. Uh, we, have to, we have to be very clear um, that media, if we, I think, you know, the way we understand democracy today, we need the media and, and we need various types uh, of media, not to just repeat free and pluralistic, but just to those who represent different point of views. Um, but I think, you know, on our side, there will be legislation or there is legislation. There has to be enforcement. And I think this we didn't talk about, but, but I can only say at the end what I said yeah. at the beginning of this panel that, you know, Eugenia and her colleagues identified, I think, very very good uh, summary of what needs to be done. Um, so it's you know more pluralism and better defined investing in journalism and and having working conditions because you know if indeed it will be paid very badly or not at all, then who will work there? You know, so so that's that's I think those three are should be our guiding uh, things, and then we can discuss the tools to achieve that. Indeed, um, Louise, your thoughts. But also I think a lot of the discussion is focused on. Um, essentially the bad things that the media does, but there are many good things that journalists do, and they are under threat. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I have nothing more to say around this, because I think Wojciech mm. was really putting it all together. Comprehensive, it yeah. Very well, so I have nothing more to say right now. Any last thoughts, Rinder? In relation to media? Yeah. Uh, I would highlight the point that this is something that has already been hinted at, but just looking at it from a very market perspective. The problem with media is that it's a very special market for two reasons. First of all, it produces a public good. Mm -hmm. It produces a good that does not only benefit whoever buys to pays to read an article or see a documentary. Well, the public that it does is, is providing it, information. That's what a journalist does every day, whether it, it's you like it or not. providing regulation and something we often forget in the spirit of what the single market is. It allows a single market to function because without proper information circulating, companies cannot operate uh, in a context where events are not discussed, events are not reported on. It provides the intelligence. It's very much the fabric of our society in this sense. The second one, uh, the... I think one year ago we had, uh, if I recall correctly, Vice President and Commissioner for Competition discussing a case of a merger of media, uh, saying this is essentially a market like any other. And the idea there that 
we are just looking at the market structure purely and its criteria you can apply to a merger between two news media companies is the same as uh, whichever company producing <laughs> pesticides. And the shift in paradigm to say, no, we must look at the impact on the market structure and we must look at how this will impact media pluralism because actually in some cases it might enhance media pluralism. In some others it might hurt it pretty bad. So including this perspective, it's a very welcome shift. Let's see how to best structure this because of course there are two different languages, the language of competition and the language of media pluralism. And how do we combine the findings of an assessment on the market structure with an assessment on media pluralism? That is going to be difficult. So it's a very welcome shift. The shift is quite revolutionary, if I may say so, but we have a lot of work ahead in finding the best way to structure and to, to, to make it work together, the media assessment, the media pluralism assessment and the market assessment. Okay, thank you very much. And then Eugenia, your final thoughts on media freedom. Um, well, I suppose like for me, the takeaway uh, from this discussion is that it is imperative um, to address the whole political economy of the digital public sphere. Um, and, and that's what needs to be done as, as the next step. And if there is a reconciliation necessary between uh, what Fernando referred to um, as the market assessment and a, and a pluralism assessment, uh, then this should take place within a broader kind of like understanding of how the political economy of the digital public sphere works. So if you have corporations having monopoly over the distribution of information and, and they're in an antagonistic relationship with the producers of information, then something must be done to kind of like uh, bring them in a, in a more kind of like, um, well, a symbiotic relationship as, as we mentioned in our recommendation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eugenia. Okay, well, moving on to our second panel then. Um, you know, we were discussing the other role as well of not, not just the media, um, but of social media, which sort of nicely segues into the second, another pillar of EDAP, countering disinformation. Now, as you were hearing, so many different actors are going to vie for power in a democracy, whether they're domestic or foreign, and they will look to influence, in some cases, even destabilize. Now, this can, of course, erode trust in democratic processes and institutions, including the media. It can put elections at risk. It can put perhaps not the best person in power. It can prevent citizens from making informed decisions and impair freedom of expression. So is the European Democracy Action Plan actually helping to counter disinformation? Well, to kick off, I'm going to go online. You can see her on our screen, Yana Kazaz from Globsec. Please go ahead for your key recommendations. Good evening. So one of the main recommendations uh, that came out of the workshop we had in Bratislava in November 8th on countering disinformation is that global tech companies should continue deepening cooperation on all levels. What we mean by that, and we have three components of it, is that first, global companies should continue developing a close working relationship with all stakeholders, especially with fact checkers, researchers and civil society organizations such as we are, Globsec. And we have to say that uh, the basis of this cooperation were already uh, put in place by code on practice on disinformation. Second element is that global tech companies should ideally uh, start to communicate and cooperate with each other also when it comes to take down more efficiently illegal harmful content that is being spread across various social media platforms. Once there is a harmful content identified by trusted flaggers on one platform, it should be not accessible on others. And lastly, uh, global tech companies should establish dedicated teams with native speakers serving as a point of contact for respective countries and 
thus uh, replicate this working relationship that was currently established on EU level, also to national levels. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, okay, Wojciech, I'm going to come to you again for a reaction to what Jana just said. I mean, I think all these recommendations, uh, you know, we, because the, the, the code of disinformation, the co anti-disinformation code essentially is, uh, has been upgraded now and from September it's a new version and I think it's exactly also the cooperation with civil society. Um, these are very important features on this one. I think I will, the, the, the especially the national languages, we see that now with uh, pro-Kremlin disinformation on Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's, it's very easy to see also by the opinion polls how, you know, in Slovakia, in Romania, in Bulgaria or in France, it's a very different type of narrative that they're using because they're, not, they're smart. They know who are they talking to. They know their audience. And it's sometimes shocking to hear from authorities of these governments that, whatever, Facebook would have one person dealing with this. And, you know, it takes a week, of course, to even respond to question. Uh, um, so this was really something that, that my boss also has insisted on every meeting with the tech senior executive, like, you know, it cannot be only English, it cannot be Europe-wide data. It has to be specific if we want to understand what's really happening and tailor our response um, accordingly, you know? And I think in one of the, I mean, for us, for me personally, I think one of the biggest achievements of the code is creation of this ecosystem that Jana was talking about, because we really want to avoid having anybody, whether it's the commission, the national government, or Mark Zuckerberg, deciding what is truth or not. That we cannot have that. So, so how in democracy how can you do that? It's indeed through this collaboration between fact checkers, civil society, big tech, and I think this is the biggest value of this code. And indeed, the idea is to elevate it uh, to much higher degree and and to support the fact checkers, the civil society, the Edmo structures, and and everybody around. So it becomes, you know, it can fly even higher. Um, one thing, one, yeah, tell me. One question on, on what sure. you said about truth. Um, isn't it the problem nowadays that everyone has their own idea of what the truth is? And isn't that also perhaps an area where you have this discontent amongst people? Yeah, I mean, you, you may be right. I also think that's one of the biggest problems today, that the, the middle, so-called middle, is smaller at the expense of extremes on the both sides. And this is problem for us as a society, because when you're in the middle, you can talk to each other and disagree better. So for me, we essentially lost the ability to disagree with each other in some sort of civilized uh, civilist way, and I mean, okay, and the, this is a much longer debate whether the social media and this, these bubbles and amplifications of seeing more of the same content have contributed uh, to that or not. I think it did, but whether it was decisive feature or not, this is, this is a different story. I mean, how to counter this? I mean, it's extremely difficult, I think, because indeed I think it's also lost of this Authority, you know, I remember when I was a child, my parents, everybody, you know, would watch the evening news channel and that would be the discussion the next day. Today you can watch, you know, and this is not bad, it just, you can watch completely different news, uh, not even in terms of take on an issue, but just completely different issues. And then this social, uh, social discussion, of course, cannot happen if you don't have 
common reference points. But hey, this is much bigger discussion. I think if it comes to this information, I would say one more point I would add to what Jana has pointed out. It's demonetization. And because, okay, fine, the Russians or other state actors, they don't do it for the money. But there are those out there who do it for the money. And it's too easy. It's, and it's too easy and too cheap to design it and do it for the money. So, you know, as I said uh, in January, this is the first test case of the new disinformation code. DSA is kicking in. Um, so let's hope that this is a revolution. But, you know, let's, we have to wait to see the results of these uh, two instruments uh, before, before we know for sure what will be the, the direct outcome or impact of this leg legislation, co-legislation uh, on the reality. Okay, Fernando, can a disinformation code actually work, given that society is so polarized? Uh, I will reject the premise. Uh, we have a wonderful study by Reuters Institute for Journalism from last year explaining how even the country in the EU, which might be more similar politically and sociologically to the US, which is arguably the UK, it's very different in terms of disinformation and polarization from the US, how we see that actually the drivers of polarization and disinformation in the US, extreme, very hard partisanship with very weak parties and a presidential system is something we don't have in Europe. So the first thing I would worry about, let's see the US as a threat in the horizon as a model, but let's not draw inferences too quickly from the US because certainly the situation in Europe is very different from the US. But from here, I think that the code of, con the code of conduct, the code of practice will actually become a code of conduct, right, under the DSA. So there is room for that, so it will actually become more binding and it will work together with the DSA. And what I think is very important in the DSA is, again, the DSA is a brilliant exercise in safeguarding fundamental rights. As far as I know, there is not a fundamental right not to be exposed to disinformation. There is a bunch of other fundamental rights, and we must fight disinformation in a way that is complying with fundamental rights. How we do this, actually, combining the code of conduct with uh, the code of practice, sorry, with the DSA, and the DSA says, okay, of course, take certain action upon receiving notices, but with a bunch of safeguards, so that uh, there is an out-of-court dispute settlement, there is there is the notice and action mechanism, of course, but there is also a statement of reasons, so that platforms do not take action without explaining why or without having. Uh, copy and paste message that they use for a million times per year where they always gave the same reason. So this is exactly why the DSA is so relevant combined with this, because we have a system where we recognize, okay, there is a bunch of different rights of different people that need to be balanced out. So in this sense, yes, it can work, but it must work for this. Uh, but let's just, you know, pair it all back a bit. I mean, you know, it's great that the EU, of course, has all of these tools, but if I'm an average person going on the internet, I don't know, um, there's an election in my country in the next few weeks and I want to learn about who the political parties are, um, who the individual candidates are, what are they doing in my area, I mean, how am I going to go online and find the actual truth? How am, I not, how am I going to inform myself without being manipulated with complete disinformation? I suggest we go back to the previous panel by having <laughs> plural and quality trustworthy media that is sustainable and does exist in our societies. But back to this, I think it's not so much about what we must demand that uh, social media does 
uh, social media platforms do, but ask them to refrain from doing what they are doing. I will quote Francis Hogan in testimony in the European Parliament. The main driver of this information is Facebook's algorithm. Facebook's algorithm recommends content based on engagement. This information and polarizing content happen to be engagement driver. You click on it, it's interesting, you spend time watching it, it releases hormones in your body and you want to stay on the platform and get more of that. So the, that but, but that algorithm's amazing for them and that's the whole point of it. Exactly, so the problem, the problem is how it? we reconcile the societal interest of not having the uh, revenues of a company drive the informational space. And of course here there is a need of reconciliation too. We have a lot in the DSA on recommender systems actually. People can opt out from engagement driven, uh, engagement driven uh, uh, recommender systems. But for instance now we have an initiative in the Council of Europe that is very interesting, which is the idea of a healthy news diet. Something that recommender systems could do is not only that they feed very little inform actual information, uh, but when they feed information, they feed information coming from news media that it's uh, ideologically aligned with the user. We could have recommender systems that feed uh, news media cover from different angles. So people would actually be informed receiving uh, links to uh, news, to articles by different uh, news media. If I'm always getting articles from The Guardian and I never get an article from The Daily Tele from the Telegraph, even though I follow both of them on Facebook, well, I think that impairs my informational space. And this is exactly what the Facebook algorithm is doing. YouTube algorithm, of course, to Twitter as per their own internal research, too. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's what I see, actually. I think probably we shouldn't be asking them to do more but we should ask them to refrain from doing what it's actually harming and the role they are playing. They, they are not creating this information. They are just making it much more appealing and much more visible. Okay, Louise, your thoughts? Is Big Tech helping or is it hindering? Um, <clears throat> well, I think it's hard to differentiate like newspapers and social media because I think they will more and more like grow into each other and like in the future we might even not see the difference and maybe there will come up news media that will make their own social media platform. So, so it's hard to put them against each other because I think they should rather collaborate as we, we've said that before. Um, and coming back to like social media, I would say it's like, yeah, it's the new open square. It's where we meet. So it's where we get our information. It's not like... Yeah, I, I'm born 1993, but I guess before that, <laughs> when you met uh, on Sundays in the church, uh, and you, uh, this is uh, longer before that, but you met there and you got your news there, like what's happening in my area, in my little town, uh, before we had the news, before we had social media, uh, and now this church or this uh, local square is on social media, and we need to... Yeah, we need to accept that. We need to make uh, it a good place to be on. And it's talking about like free speech. Now maybe they're all coming into each other. But um, it's a difference between, yeah, writing anything on social media, uh, getting a lot of likes, getting a lot of, uh, um, yeah, you're shown around uh, the social media, even though it's TikTok, Twitter, whatever. But it's different if you're, um, having an anonymous account and you're getting your voice amplified by the algorithm. So 
there should really be a difference here, I think. And we've seen that on different social media where accounts that are not verified, that we don't know who they are, and they are sp spreading this information. And uh, we can't really do anything about it. So. Okay, but, but do Gen Z, I mean, you're from Gen Z, um, do you realize that, or do younger generations realize that, they, that when they, I mean, obviously online, when you, on, being online is, is, is the way of the world now, and it's how younger generations have been brought up. They haven't been brought up with physical newspapers and things like that. But when they're going online, are they realizing that there is disinformation out there? I think sometimes maybe the younger generation are better in understanding this than the older generation. Sometimes you see people sharing things on Facebook thinking it's real and you're like, oh no, what is this? Uh, but, but that is the space where they go now, I mean, yeah. generally speaking. So do they believe that the information also that they are viewing online, younger generations, do they believe that that information is also fit for purpose? I think it's different all over Europe. I don't really know how it works, but in schools, for example, in Sweden, it's very much focused on uh, how, learn how to engage online. But if, of course, it could be much better. Um, and uh, yeah, I had something else around that, but now I forgot it. So I will come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, can, can I yes, just please, very, go ahead, yeah. very quickly, because I yeah. think it's, um, I don't know whether I've I fully agree with this aspect, that's, uh, with two aspects. First of all, the difference between the social media and media is one produces content, the other doesn't. Um, and it's very clear difference because professional media ob obey to some standards. Like, for instance, you have to verify the news in two sources. Uh, and, and among many others, and that's where the difference comes from. Social media, Facebook, doesn't have its own content creators uh, because it's the people, we are the, the people who create the content there. So it's essentially an empty sheet of paper where people fill in with, with space, and that is a very important difference. Uh, and that also is some of the problem that we as users of social media should be able to distinguish who is producing this content, because indeed seeing an article from The Guardian could be something different than seeing whatever, a picture but created by it, me, it, you know, which If it comes from the media, it's generally a verified news. source. And another thing, uh, it's not a public square. It's social media, this is what they were trying to tell us, that they, that's why they shouldn't be regulated, because they're public square. But they're not, because the way algorithms work is they actually dividing this and putting us, taking us from the public square and putting us to discussion clubs, but people with very similar views. Indeed, in the past, I could, if I was running for a candidate or had an issue, I could go. I still you don't seem like you, you, you agree no, with me. No, just quickly on Facebook. Go no, ahead, because, yeah. because on public square, you could say and everybody could listen. And today, I can design my message. But not everyone has a, a voice small, in the public square. Only, small small the biggest, only the biggest voices have um, a voice. On sure, the but you square. could hear what others are saying. So if I go out in the center of Brussels and start shouting, you're a thief you will hear that. If I do it on social media and I pay for it, But what I would say about an algorithm vouchers. is you can always write a beaten algorithm. You can, I mean, for example, if you just like cats and rainbows, um, then the algorithm is just going to show you that. But if you actively then try to change your algorithm, you will then be, or you start to search for different things, go into different spaces. No. You will then be you know, able to see all kinds of information. It's just about how you, as a user as well, use the tools and how you engage online. 
which is important. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. I'm just saying social media, because they're driven by algorithm, it's not a public space. It's not, it's not a public square, sorry, it's a public space, but it's not a public square principles. And that's why we regulate it, because if it was, DSA is exactly about that, is to bring the principles of the public square debate into the online world. Uh, if, and that was the reason, the main arguments against the uh, regulation from social media companies, they were saying two things. We're a public square, so don't judge us what is out there. And second, we're just the pipes, you know? Like, I mean, we're not responsible even for the sewage that goes through it. So these are really ten, this is, you know, they lost this argument, and, and we shouldn't be supporting their argument that no, we're not, even we're they not, don't I, put out no, there anymore, I mean, you know? We're not supporting that yeah. argument. I mean, obviously, everything needs regulating, whether you're social media or the media. Not everything needs regulating. Uh, well, maybe yeah. it's not all regulated. Um, but then, for example, if you see social media as a threat, which seems to be the case, how is, for example, the European Commission using social media to then engage with younger generations? Badly. Because they, badly? Okay. Yeah. Well, how could you do better? You should be on TikTok. I, we should be on a TikTok. certain commission <laughs> is coming to be a proficient user of Mastodon. No. Oh, ah, there you go. Okay. Uh, just one. Uh, yes, yeah, the, the, the building up yeah. very briefly on Wojtek because I think it's going to be the same point. It's not only about standards. I completely agree with Wojtek on that point. But there is one notion that is already in the audiovisual media directive that it's upheld and strengthened by the Commission in the EMFA proposal, which is a true responsibility. It's not only standards, it's that there is someone taking responsibility. <coughs> there, uh, journalism is a journalist adhering to standards, but an editor checking and an editor ensuring I the can, quality. I can affirm that journalists do have standards well, and their editors no forget and their producers this. and everyone within the chain adheres yeah. to the codes of because practice. As long as I know, last time, a couple of years ago, last time I posted something on Facebook, I had no editor checking what I was publishing. And this is the very fundamental difference. Well, then you should also think about the place where you work. At. <laughs> okay, um, we have a question from um, Gwenelle. She says, given the importance of fighting against disinformation online, what do the panelists think about Article 17 of the Media Freedom Act, which gives the possibility to any entities to benefit from advantage gained by VLOPs when it comes to moderation of their content? Perhaps that's your area of expertise. Oh, no? Uh, I'm drafting a public statement on that, so... Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, to start with, it's amending de facto the DSA before it comes into force. There are a couple issues with it. So it's, uh, the, uh, it, it's welcome that, uh, different to the DSA, it's actually it's a procedural rule, not a rule of substance very much, and that it's very nuanced. But there is a problem in Article 17.1, with self-definition of media. So anyone can declare to be media platform should accept it uh, as a fact that anyone declaring to be media should be, should be treated as media. And the, 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 something that I'm completely, the Freedom House uh, runs this report yearly on freedom in the internet, freedom in the net. And they've been looking for over removal or over uh, regulation of uh, news media content. There's no over-removal in any EU country. I've checked the last 27 national reports. I couldn't find anything. So I don't think there is a policy. If I understand correctly, the Commission does a policy proposal because there is a policy problem. I don't see a policy problem specifically with news media content being over-moderated compared to uh, any other content. So I do think because the DSA is very fit for purpose and because the DSA is actually very good, particularly in this area, 
I don't see the advantage that Article 17 brings, but I'm open to being persuaded otherwise. Article 17 came, f it's, it's, you know, it's the, the media and the publishers themselves that flag this as a problem, you know, I mean, it's, we don't only, we try to, some, in some regulations we try to capture the potential problems that will arise in the future. I mean, I hate this phrase, but we try to future-proof. Um, but okay, you know, and this, this comes from, uh, from the publishers themselves. And now, in the context of war, we hear Ukrainian media who had to go online, and Facebook is their internet, but Facebook have very strict own policies on depicting violence, for instance. So, uh, because, you know, normally it should be for cats and dogs and good things, and that's fine. But how do you inform, if Facebook becomes de facto your internet and, and your viewers are there, how do you show the massacres in Bucha and in other places when you cannot depict violence? So the only, op the, the, the idea behind Article 17 of the Media Freedom Act is to create an early warning system. So say, hey, you, Facebook, whatever, I mean, poor Facebook, I keep mentioning them as an example, but okay, they will survive. Um, hey, Facebook, you know, before you remove the content, editorial content that, you know, is subject to the standards we just talked yes, about, have a channel of, you know, give them an early warning, say, hey guys, you're violating my conditions, there's well, a little card, you, you know? You see that, you see that online, whether it's, um, you know, mm. a little video clip that no. you're going to see on any social media platform to anything you see on the no. website um, of a news channel, there is always this sort of little screen, this black screen that comes up, says no. viewers might find this information disturbing. No. I mean, but, the, but that's fine. Mm. The problem is that they, and this is, you know, again, this is from the, the East Ukraine media themselves they say well we are shot we have for days and weeks we have no response to Facebook why did they shut us down what have we done wrong uh, and this was their main source of revenue uh, as well given in the context uh, the war context we're in and this is extreme case but these complaints or these concerns have come from publishers also not only Ukrainian yeah. but others so you know I mean again I'm not a journalist I'm not an owner of the media so I cannot quantify it uh, but I think it's fair that we create this early warning channel as saying you know still respect the DSA of course right implement your mo mo moderation policy but treat the media a bit more special you know. yes. But isn't this already in the DSA when we... If it was, we wouldn't be proposed again. But I, 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 of course not in the yeah, wording, but it, isn't it indirectly <laughs> when in the risk assessments we are saying take particular care on freedom of expression, particularly by media organizations we have in mm. 34 in a way. I think it's a very interesting debate going forward. Fernando, if I may, I feel, and maybe this is a very, this is, this is a strong word I'm going to use, but I sense a little bit of hostility um, against the media from you. <laughs> hostility against the media. A little bit of hostility, yeah. I, I do represent a media freedom <laughs> organization, so I wonder. But no, it's interesting because sometimes <laughs> I think um, the media have a bit of a bad name, um, and perhaps the way in which you know, I don't know. It seems that the way in which you've spoken about there's there's a little bit hostility attached, and perhaps that is how the general public sometimes views some sections of the media. I think it's fair. I yeah. think I don't have any hostility towards the media, and I wonder what have I said that makes you think that, honestly. <laughs> well, listen, look, I'm uh, glad you but, don't. But no, I, I, I do think I'm, I've, throughout my intervention, I have been critical of the way media content is dealt with 
by online platforms, not the content of the media as such. And particularly, I think I'm arguing for the, there's many people that are very happily saying, take down this information, may this include media content or not, and I'm precisely arguing no. In this euphoria about taking down this information, you're probably infringing on the rights of media. I think it's precisely the opposite. Okay. Good to know. Okay, um, we're a little bit over, so I'm going to go to Jana for some quick um, final thoughts. Okay, uh, I would like to react to something that you mentioned actually at the beginning, because uh, for most of the part I agreed with what Wojciech was actually mentioning, but you were mentioning that um, there is like uh, people have more, more types of truth and where is the truth and so on. So I would just go there and say that there is just one truth and there are many opinions and we cannot touch opinions of people that they express, but we can fact check op those opinions that are backed by information that are wrong, that are uh, backed by facts that are actually wrong. And this is what we have fact checkers for, and this is where they come into picture and on social media. And together with uh, platforms, they can actually take down the amplified opinions backed by misleading information. So this is what we are going for. Otherwise, people should be freely, they should be allowed to express their opinions that they have. But we can fact check those that are actually backed by false information. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. Okay, we're going to uh, move straight away to our third panel, um, which is election integrity and crises. Now, to use the words again of the European Parliament President, uh, Metsola, she said, to those malign actors in third countries who think they can buy their way forward, who think Europe is for sale, you will find the European Parliament in your way. But is the European Parliament in its own way? Um, there are lots of calls now, of course, for better scrutiny, better transparency of how the European Parliament works and MEPs to curb lobbying, etc., etc., etc. Given elections to the Parliament are coming up, what comes next for the European Union? Well, let's find out as we, of course, discuss election integrity and crises. To kick things off, um, you can see her on our screens, um, Alzbeta Solacic. Krosova, who's the head of regulatory unit at SEDMO. Please go ahead for your opening recommendations. is that uh, the, the proposed EU regulation on the transparency and targeting of political advertising needs to create an effective transparency framework, which would include dedicated re repositories of political advertising for the largest platforms, parallel uh, to general advertising repositories that are required now by the Digital Services Act. carefully drafted in order to provide uh, sufficient protection to the freedom of expression and not to become a tool for censorship. 
Any legal action aimed at removing certain disinformation should be examined and properly justified within a sufficiently long time without losing efficiency. Uh, and lastly, the system for taking down disinformation should contain checks and balances in order to minimize potential misuse of power. And authors of such disinformation should have the right to appeal. Okay, thank you very much, Halbert. So, so what do you make then, um, um, uh, Wojciech, of what um, Alsbeth has just said? And also about, she's saying, regulation leads to more distrust by the public, does it? No, I was just thinking about that. Mm. So. Because it sounds a bit like a Brexiteer, I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, now we are, what, many years after Brexit, Britain mm. is all deregulated and the trust doesn't reappear to the national yeah. institutions. So mm -hmm. well, I guess, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being ironic about this a little bit because they haven't deregulated that much. But uh, still, but I think, the, indeed, the key issue, I think, from what Alish Beta would, uh, was saying for me is trust. And this is not only trust to... It's, it's in all the panels. It's how to have trust to media, societal trust to media, societal trust to the democratic institutions, uh, societal trust to laws, and societal trust to, to one another, essentially, uh, in order to do that. I mean, I, uh, I think, you know, what the, the, the political ads repository, yeah, sure, uh, why not? Um, good idea, and probably will happen. The, the discussion is how. Um, on, on the disinformation points, I mean, we discussed the, the, that a little bit in the in the previous panel as well. Um, so I think it's not even about the regulation, more regulation or less. I think it's about quality of regulation and our ability, okay, if it's European legislation, <laughs> our common ability to explain to why are we doing this, is it needed, and what will be the effects uh, of, of that regulation. Um, and indeed, that's why I was trying to say that in democracy, when we are regulating around the freedom of speech, so disinformation, foreign interference, online space and things like that, we have to find a democratic response to that. So indeed, no censorship, no ministry of truth, no one arbiter of truth and, and things like that. But whether that will do the trick, again, I think this is also this request that came from me, that it's it has to be our common job, because that's also the issue with uh, with what you mentioned, that, that, that essentially there is <coughs> less trust, maybe you said hostility towards the media, not from Fernando, but in general mm. there is societal, I think, mistrust into the media that I don't agree with, you know, that there is interior motive behind why are they sell, saying things that I don't uh, agree with, well, and that it's, we it's, have it's, to try it's, to address. It's a little bit about what you're saying about tribes as well. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily that somebody will distrust the media, you know, a blanket distrust. No, they no, will only blanket. trust they, what exactly. they believe based on exactly. the people or the or exactly. whatever they, that they actually believe. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, you know, there is no silver bullet to that, and I, I think we are aware of that. Uh, that's why we're trying this an, another quite ugly phrase, whole society approach, you know, stemming from, starting from digital uh, support for digital literacy and things like that. So we also, you know, old people like myself can understand what happens uh, online and the, you know, what content is created where. Um, but anyhow, you know, this democratic resilience, it's so broad because it's from cybersecurity. I mean, you know, anti-corruption measures you mentioned uh, yourself. Uh, although here it's just quite interesting, just last word, because I'm from Poland, but if I follow American politics or any politics and there is a corruption scandal, when somebody is caught, it's never 
the institution, right? It's not the whole Congress is corrupt, it's the Republican Party or Democratic Party. Here, somehow, interestingly, for the European institution, there's one MEP caught, and all of a sudden, the entire institution, if not one, all of them, uh, are, are, are guilty of, of corruption. So it's, it's quite interesting allegedly. why this phrasing... Allegedly. It, innocent, it'll be um, but it's quite interesting, the framing of this as well, mm -hmm. and that this is the European Parliament is, is corrupt, whereas when, you know, an MP is caught sometimes on the national thing, specific MP from a given party. So, Well, I think it's also, um, I mean, I don't want to go too much into the details of the case because I've said it's an ongoing case at the moment. Um, yeah. But I think it's the scale um, of, of the kind of corruption. It's sort of come out of nowhere, essentially. I mean, it's not to say, no offence to politicians, um, it's not to say, I think we're all aware, wherever we are in the world, corruption exists, whether it's in politics or, or any other area. Um, it's just the kind of scale of it. Out of nowhere, you've got someone talking about bags of cash and, you know, various foreign actors involved in, in, in the, you know, in, in the works or trying to influence what the European Parliament does. And I think that's the problem, is this idea of why were they trying to influence and who was trying to influence and how have they perhaps influenced what the European Parliament um, or was, was trying to do? And we don't obviously have. But why the European Parliament? Why? Well, that was my point. Why are you saying the European Parliament was trying to do? I mean, if they caught one MEP, mm. the question is what they were paying her for, allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Allegedly. allegedly. Everything I say <laughs> allegedly, is allegedly. allegedly. Even if yeah. I don't say the word allegedly, <laughs> I mean allegedly. Uh, why are they? Where they? Why are? They, who paid her? Not the European Parliament. What did they want her to do? not the European Parliament. I think it's super big distinction because you cannot just extrapolate to 700 people that are working there or like MP MEPs but we don't know and if thousands it was, of people. For now, we don't actually know if it was just her. Other offices have been sealed. We don't quite know exactly what the situation is. Um, and as I said, they're different state actors, you know, different people saying, you know, uh, information's coming out. Is, is, is Morocco involved in it? Is Saudi Arabia? That's also another allegation. Um, is it Qatar? We literally don't know at the moment what is going on. There's just so many allegations going on around yeah, But we know it's one MEP. We do, yeah, we do know it's one, and yeah, she does. I don't want to undermine this, it's just it's more narrative uh, thing, because, you know, there's... You know, it's great that Belgium, that, you know, the fact that she was uh, caught allegedly red-handed uh, is, uh, is great testimony of the actually how, how anti-corruption services work, you know. I mean, that's just, it's actually, you know, uh, but this is also something we have to learn and uh, learn from the crisis. And, you know, already von der Leyen, President von der Leyen, has indicated the, the work that we have started on this interinstitutional ethics body. Trans we have to look at the transparency rules, uh, whether they could be strengthened. There will be anti-corruption package coming later this year that was announced you know, during the State of the Union later this year, next year already, because we're at the end of this year, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, so there are elements uh, planned that could improve the situation and hopefully we will find a way to make it more difficult for those who are tempted to accept bag of cash mm. you know what? to be caught uh, to be caught like they were this time um, so there you go you know i think i think the question is what can be done better uh, and what can be done more by the institutions themselves and how to support the law enforcement agencies, uh, police and others across the member states so they can do their job be even better than mm. they're doing I mean, now. you know, you say it's just one, one MEP, um, yeah. allegedly. Um, <laughs> but 
the fact that this has it's a scandal that has sullied the reputation exactly. of trust. One, yeah, yeah, trust that people have <laughs> in this one particular institution, um, and perhaps the EU as a whole. So, mm. I mean, if I, if an everyday person is is hearing about this scandal, an everyday European, mm. um, why should they still have trust in the European project itself? Does it does this one scandal, because it is such a massive scale, does it erode trust, Louise? Perhaps you can take that one. Well, I agree. It's it's a big scandal, and I think, uh, well, for like normal people in Sweden, I, sometimes I think that maybe what's happening in EU isn't that well covered in me, in media in Sweden. So that's maybe a bit of um, a criticism against media in and the EU in Sweden. Uh, but I think this is a very problematic for European institutions. Um, but we will we need to remember that. Uh, EU are bigger than certain politicians and the European project is about ideas and visions and the best thing about democracy is that when you're disappointed at the politician you can fire them so let's <laughs> <Indeed>. do that <laughs> indeed um, and Fernando what then can the EU learn um, you know you've seen in its very good moments um, the war in Ukraine it really rose up to the task at hand. It's shown how well it can support Ukraine. But then also we have perhaps a worse moment we're seeing right now, we're living through right now, this, this whole Qatar gate. Um, so, so what can yeah, the EU learn from all of this? And where does it go to now? I will tie it as it was done to the idea of trust institutions. And the points by Alberta were very on point. I work a lot on political ads and I would have struggled myself to summarize that much and to concentrate so much in one minute. I would say that the, the issue is that in relation to elected institutions, we have two challenges that are interwoven but are nevertheless different. The idea of ensuring that elections are free and fair and the idea that nevertheless those who lose them can accept them, so the idea of trust. Mm. And the idea that we can have actors the social level, at the societal level, but actually at the political level, who distrust the result of the elections, even if they are free and fair. So I think the Commission is very right putting forward this initiative on uh, political advertising, because we need to ensure free and fair elections. And the moment ads go online, ads are very little regulated across the EU in member states, political ads online. So they needed European regulation. There was a response needed, particularly with the European Parliament regulation ahead in 2024. But there is, the issue of, there is the issue of trust. I, there is a very interesting ruling of the German Constitutional Court on electronic voting machines. They essentially said they are perfectly fine, they, will, they are safe, but people will not necessarily trust them. So even if they are safe, we shouldn't be using them because we don't want to give people unnecessary reasons to distrust of democracy when we can just spend 20 minutes checking papers to see who voted for whom. It's not worth it saving 20 minutes if that is going to mean distrust on democracy. So I would invite, when thinking about political ads, which mechanisms we put in place. Uh, I will put Zuckerberg on here. Zuckerberg, one, in one of his famous speeches, he goes and says, we are here to disrupt everything. And probably democracy uh, here is sorry for overquoting, but here is Hannah Arendt. I think one doesn't need to be a conservative to agree with Hannah Arendt in one point, that democracy relies on a minimum tradition, whether we criticize it, what we do with it, but without a tradition, whether we accept it, criticize it, reinvent it, there is no possible democracy, because we need this minimum agreement, and these minimum agreements are things we inherit. So, 
how can we actually regulate political ads in a way that now that political ads change radically because they go from being on TV, from being on the radio, being on billboards, to being on screens, on your laptop, on your smartwatch, on your phone? How do we ensure a minimum element of tradition so that there is not only free and fair elections, but elections uh, that uh, citizens can trust the results of? Okay, well, I have a question here from Adrian, based on what you were saying as well. Um, Adrian says, democracy depends on having a healthy middle class. Average citizens hate politics and the media because they feel big government and big tech go together. Why should citizens even trust big tech to favor inclusion? Anything too big and too powerful is bad for the middle guy. No. What do we make of that one? They shouldn't trust big tech. Why would they? We don't need that trust to private sector to necessarily have healthy society. So that's no. my uh, no. I don't think so. I think we what we need is the dose of skepticism towards everything we see around. I, I kind of have a feeling that too many of us are a bit too little critical about reality around us. Uh, and I in what sense? That we take things at face value. You know, that's the point. I mean, you know, why. Propaganda is allegedly, my new favorite word, thank you very much for <laughs> my that. My pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, is allegedly so successful because we believe in it, you know? And I think with the dose of uh, skepticism, maybe we wouldn't. The same when it comes to data, personal data usage of private companies, you know? We're not bothered by it. If we were, maybe they would do it a bit less. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't trust them. I think... It, it's not necessary to trust the big tech or the or any big company necessarily. I think they they benefit. They would benefit from healthy dose of skepticism from society. Go ahead. Yeah, I I don't know if I agree, but I think as long as you always talk about more regulations in here, and of course uh, that could sometimes be good, but I also see uh, difficult difficulty when. We have big techs because they are really good in lobbying and they want regulation if they're formed their way. So I think the conclusion to all of this is that we should have more competition because in the social media market, we talked about like in a few years ago, yeah, Facebook is the biggest thing. All uses is they're the hugest com the company all over the world. But now we see they're, they're coming in new social media companies. And I think we should strive for having more European social media companies. So then we need to open up the market and we need to say we want more innovation, we want newer companies to compete with the big techs rather than just regulate it all and we'll just have the big companies. Well, there's, there's also a question um, which says should we break up big tech like we did in the early 20th century in the United States. Um, it seems like a slightly old-fashioned, outdated concept, but... What do you think? I don't think we need that. It's more competition. More competition yeah. is yeah. the answer. I think we'll have it in 20 years. Uh, we often discuss big tech in a very superficial manner, which is horizontal competition. Mm -hmm. So Facebook having a different Facebook. The problem of Facebook is that it's vertical competition. Think about the electricity market. There are a lot of companies that go from the moment electricity is produced until it's delivered at your apartment. So there is someone producing it, there is someone stabilizing, there is someone that puts it in the grid, and there is someone ultimately even checking uh, how much you have consumed or not. So there might be four or five companies uh, since the moment electricity is produced until the electricity this uh, deliver you. 
Facebook or YouTube, what essentially they do is that they integrate vertically in the same way an electricity company could have the whole system. So they are hosting the content, they are giving you access to it, they are deciding which algorithm you have. You cannot have a third party. This is perfectly technically feasible. Having a third party, having a company different from Facebook, this uh, uh, do for you, they're recommending or, uh, how, what will you see and not. And that's where we don't have competition. Probably we don't need a second Facebook, probably we need a better Facebook. Let Facebook be hosting and let Facebook be a player in the recommender systems. But if we want competition and markets, why don't we break up? We have done this over and over again with good economic results in other sectors. We have prevented uh, economic integration vertically. The problem is that digital world was very disruptive. Everything happened very fast and we consolidated and we are taking for granted as natural, exactly as Wojtek was saying. We, don't, we take things at face value. We take, for, we take it for granted that a company can have this huge degree of vertical integration. We wouldn't be allowing, sorry to go back to a stupid example, in pesticides. But we have been to allow it for social media. So I'm pretty confident in 20 years we will get fed up that the DSA will deliver, but only to an extent. So will the DMA, but only to an extent. And then we'll look for solutions and we'll go for the obvious. Split them vertically. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, final thoughts from Alice Better, please. Uh, okay, so I unfortunately didn't get an uh, option to react on the reaction on the more that the more regulation can lead to more distrust of the government. I would like to clarify a bit on that uh, in that regard, because we actually on the national level we had uh, research sociological research that actually showed that uh, sometimes people think that if a government is putting too much of national uh, regulation in place with regard to disinformation, uh, then uh, the common people are afraid that this might uh, turn very easily into the tool of censorship. Uh, so that's why we mentioned uh, in our recommendation that this uh, regulation, like a vast regulation, could lead to distrust, especially with the history of being a communist country uh, in the former period uh, then the law could be really misused. And I believe that it's still ingrained in the people who are afraid of uh, this uh, regulation that might be like going too far. So that would be the first idea. And uh, secondly, I enjoyed very much your discussion about, uh, about the political uh, advertising and how to secure the uh, integrity of uh, elections. My uh, last remark to that I would say is that uh, I very much welcome the uh, upcoming, the, the proposed regulation on transparency uh, and targeting of political advertising. The thing is uh, that even though these are very good rules, uh, I would like uh, to say that there is no problem with those who are adhering to the rules. We need to have uh, certain mechanisms in place for those who are not adhering to the rules. And there is this Article 9 of the regulation that uh, speaks about indicating possibly unlawful political advertisement. This is a mechanism that is going to play very much into the trust of people and in the trust of society to companies and to those who are going to put those mechanisms in place. Uh, and I guess that the, few, uh, the way forward, uh, what we need to focus in the future is actually to define the best practices of indicating the possibly unlawful po uh, political advertising. Because uh, political advertising can have many forms and we need to be prepared 
we need to be ready to react on unprecedented challenges and to think a little bit as a criminal uh if i can use the word criminal it's like a metaphor but to uh create very uh, to think very creatively as marketing specialists who could really uh, do political advertising in a way that is undetectable so this is a big challenge forward and that's my closing point thank you so much okay panelists you have 10 seconds each for your final statements um so fernando 10 seconds off you go uh, very much looking forward to the Defense of Democracy package. Thank you. Um, Louise? Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this uh, discussion. I think we covered a lot of uh, topics and I'm hoping that the Commission would not only focus on re about regulation, 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 but also how to make a competitive European market for social media companies and for the civil society. Project, will you do that? Not everything is for regulation, and I really don't think so. We are obsessed in regulation, especially when it comes to the freedom of speech area or fighting uh, disinformation. And, but I think, for me, that even if we have the best rules, they're as effective as its enforcement. And I think this is the future of the success of the DSA and other big pieces of legislation that's supposed to bring the fairness to the digital market. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, panelists. Thank you to everyone who's watching. I'm Ariam Zadi. You've been watching AU Active, debate supported by Microsoft. Thank you and Merry Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.